0: Okay, I've got no idea how to introduce this book. I actually comfort eat my way through the end. Hello, you're listening to Social Science Talks Science Fiction, a podcast in which social scientists, philosophers, researchers and theorists discuss the themes and works of science fiction. This podcast is recorded in the International Politics Building at Aberystwyth University and is available free under a Creative Commons license. We hope you enjoy the programme. In George Orwell's seminal work 1984, protagonist Winston Smith ruminates on the nature of the dictatorship that he lives under. He says the party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears it was their final most essential command his heart sank as he thought of the enormous power arrayed against him the ease with which any party intellectual would overthrow him in debate the subtle arguments he would not be able to understand much less answer and yet he was in the right they were wrong and he was right 1984 is not only omnipresent in our pop culture but it's recently returned to the top of the bestseller list, most notably in the United States, so we figured it was time to talk about the book. Joining us today we have someone who used to work in the United States Senate, and someone who describes themselves as a massive Orwell fan. Uh, I'm Matthew Campbell.
1: I'm Alex Hoseason.
0: I'm Jim Chisholm.
2: Danielle Young.
0: Okay, so um, Alex warned us beforehand we better actually just talk about the novel rather than immediately getting sidetracked. <laughs> why we chose the number. <laughs> I mean,
1: but we've been doing this malarkey for, what, like, two and a half years now, right? And we, we always avoided 1984. Because we thought it was too easy. In a sense that it's quite easy to slip into, like, quite hackneyed kind of debates. You know, the constant use of the phrase Orwellian in areas where it really doesn't apply.
0: And Big Brother being a TV show and... Uh, I think the thing that first sparked me was that Jim interviewed me a while ago and I happened to mention 1984 and his reaction was is 1984 a science fiction book? And the answer is well, at the time, clearly it is that the government has all these technologies which were fantasy at the time. Um, The idea that it could collate all the information on a people there could be tiny listening devices everywhere and of course the most fantastical and outlandish the idea the government might use your television to spy on you. (laughs) I,
1: I, I think... I mean, it was at the time, right? But I think it's also one of those novels. So, I mean, we read a lot of stuff that's kind of self-consciously science fiction, right? So, like, we read Ian Banks and all that kind of stuff. I think maybe one of the reasons we were shy about doing 1984 over the last couple of years is because the answer to that question, is 1984 a science fiction novel, is does it matter? Right? And it it clearly doesn't. So we, we kind of always... Shied away from it. Danielle's sticking post-it <laughs> notes over a webcam. You're
2: supposed
1: to. To be fair, um, that's one of the,
0: the basic security things of... Uh, I can
1: see you, it's just you look
0: jaundiced with the yellow. <laughs> Danielle, there's a recording device already on. That's how we record the podcast.
2: I, I was just sort of <laughs> laughing about all these things are like, Mark Zuckerberg covers his uh, camera and you should too. And, and, uh,
3: that's terrifying. i thought about
1: this before. I kind of don't want to do it because Mark Zuckerberg
2: it definitely. So <laughs> she's
1: <doesn't laughs> like, "You're like, I want the government to spy yeah. on me."
2: Well, it's not just the government. It's a proven thing. People can hijack your. Yeah. You know,
0: here we go, not watch. talking about the novel. Yeah, here so, we're uh, not about all. You, you are having a thought about <laughs> nothing no, I more mean, sci-fi.
1: So no, I, I think, it, yeah. I mean, it is just so. It's everywhere, right? Although I will, I will say that reading it again and actually genuinely spending the time to read it, he says, having just listened to an audio book. Um. Actually, spending some time reading it rather than just kind of trotting out the tropes from what I remember from when I read it when I was like fourteen or something. It's terrifying. So it's absolutely
0: terrifying. The other thing rereading it is that there's so much of it which is completely omnipresent in yeah. modern ideas, but so much of it isn't. So we have TV shows named after it, but no one ever, you know, pop culture references its theory of history.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of. I think we've lost some of the reference points, right? You know, when he, when he says things like, hope lies at the proles, and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, that kind of doesn't make sense anymore, as a, as a phrase.
0: Um, well, it's important to remember how deeply grounded it is in the immediate post-World War II experience. In that there, are, there are huge sections of British cities which lie in rubble. And there really is this huge gulf between. So one of the problems during World War Two was the government had all this advice of, well, you can just dig a bomb shelter in your garden. Well, the vast majority of people who lived in British cities didn't have gardens because they were working class.
2: Well, and there's also the whole the nuclear weapons issue, where I mean, part of the the pretext for 1984 to be able to happen is that there's been a mass catastrophe or whatever, and then is it that it's been annexed by the US or is yeah. that cle- not clear? Well,
0: you it's sort of. Part of a, a broader alliance which has become a country. Although one thing I, rem- I remembered while reading it was, interestingly, Atlee's government had this plan to move great sections of, of, of British industry and, and running the country to the north to try and sort of balance out the way the country was structured. And more importantly, make it harder to bomb. Um, because they realised that if they scattered industry about the place, you couldn't, like, carpet bomb a city and knock stuff out. But then nuclear weapons came along and uh, scuffered Clement Atlee's idea for fixing the north.
1: One of the things that did surprise me, actually, were when I mean I, I, I don't know enough about this to kind of know, but he he's quite obviously making reference to this idea that war is an economic benefit, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, in terms of surplus production and stuff. I mean, when does that come about? Because I mean, it's quite clear that the war does, in a lot of ways, contribute to the end of the Great Depression. Yeah. Right. But when when does this come about intellectually? I'm,
3: I I think the the kind of merchants of Death thesis in the the immediate mm-hmm. post World War One era in in America, people like mm-hmm. Charles Beard. Um, it was definitely a strong intellectual trend linked to isolationist. Thinking. Well,
2: and I think part of it too is that it was very clear before the war broke out that the U S economy was not at its full capacity, which is why the war was beneficial for it economically. It wouldn't necessarily have been before that it could have been a bigger strain and that kind of thing. It, and it obviously wasn't economically beneficial for everyone.
0: In in terms um, of... Sorry, you want to... No, no. Uh, in terms of uh, awareness of war production for war production's sake, Eisenhower is certainly the... Hmm. He famously coins military-industrial complex, which isn't quite the same thing as Orwell is pointing out, but the idea that we're just going to build some military gear for the sake of building it.
2: Well, George Washington, that is what he's famous for in his last um, his last address before he left the presidency was a warning, saying basically we do yeah. need to pay attention to the facts that we have this continent-sized country and it could easily be overrun by a militaristic sort of... Um, um,
3: well, that's
0: it's very, very deliberate until the US Civil War that so many regiments are temporary and voluntary, so that there yeah. isn't a standing army.
3: Yeah. And that's what Eisenhower was consciously echoing that farewell address. Yeah. Um, warning against a garrison status.
0: It's certainly much older in Britain. There's a here's my weird Scottish history thing coming in. There's a tiny little village in Scotland called Eventon, and on the top of this hill is this completely pointless monument known as Firish, And it was was built simply because uh, a bunch of soldiers left the army and had no jobs. And so someone decided, you know, we'll just build a completely pointless monument and we'll pay a bunch of guys to carry some pointless rocks to the top of a pointless hill just for the sake of building one.
3: The manner in which Orwell talks about Spare productive capacity, or, or whatever you want to call it, is, is slightly different in the sense that it is uses an, an oppressive yeah. tool, mm. which might be a, a more unique idea at the time.
1: Is it? I mean, but it's kind of at this weird point where he's probably still able to make conscious references to workhouses in a way that is is a, is a little bit alien for us now, right? I mean, you know, you still have this kind of paternalistic Victorian kind of thing, which is still about in some ways. I mean, it's disappeared in practice, but like in le- in a lot of ways, but the idea is still there, right? The kind of nation building idea and mm-hmm. labor and everything else.
2: It's interesting though, the difference between like reading this as an American and what you guys are talking about, because there's a much bigger social safety net that grew up in Britain after, the, I mean, the US had one as a result of FDR and the new deal and all that sort of thing but it's much more spare than what you have over here and so actually i feel like that might be part of the reason why nineteen eighty four is resonating a lot more in the u.s. right now it's at the top of the amazon bestseller list and stuff is because there's all the stuff with trump obviously but there's also the republicans wanting to slash any kind of social spending while also driving everything towards the military and it's it's a little bit more like we're not really that actually that far from things like people having to go back to workhouses and stuff.
1: There is a weird thing in this that, and this is something that, honestly, I I didn't remember the ending all that well, I think. Because one of the things that shocked me, of course, is that they put him back into society. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right? So, I mean, the the kind of bare objective necessities, in in terms of, like, bare objective necessities, the party does provide. Mm -hmm. Right? So, I mean, actually, in that sense, it's still relying on that kind of post-war slight welfarist idea it's
0: it's their final victory of so they have that conversation about you can't have martyrs because martyrs are counterproductive which is something we still struggle with in our own version of politics and you can't just torture uh, a fake confession out of someone because people still know the truth anyway and so Orwell's final step is to go beyond what we'll say the Khmer Rouge or Communist Hitschiff's achieved and have a final actually no, we're really going to break you and they are gonna put you back into society because we can. But then Winston points out they, they then go and shoot you anyway.
3: I think Orwell's attitude towards socialism, and particularly English socialism, which he was concerned about over everything else. Yeah. And this book, in many ways, is an attempt to take the the experience of, of Russian communism and ask, well, well, how would that happen in, in the Anglosphere? Would it be any different? Would there be peculiarly English or, or, or American aspects to it? But all, 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 I've always found Orwell's approach to socialism quite confusing, and I think because I'm so influenced by Orwell, that has reflected in my own approach to, to the question. So he's very much, I think, attracted to the romantic socialism of um, of More and of GDH Cole and of the the experience of the Labour Party through Keir Hardie and obviously through things like Homage to Catalonia, his experience with Marxism or with with Stalinism um, kind of complicate things a lot so I think he was very mistrustful of the Labour Party Oh, and English Socialism or Ingsoc that is what I think he is projecting, the Labour Party's Experience and involvement in the, the the wartime coalition, how he accepted essentially, whatever you want to call it, authoritarian dictatorial powers for, for, the, for the British state. And he's extrapolating that 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years in the future, obviously with this experience of an atomic war, where bizarrely the only town that is mentioned being bombed is Colchester. Well, the, the thing which
0: uh, Thomas Pinchon. Um, pointed out was that from Orwell's point of view there's really no guarantee that Labour have just come to power. There's really no guarantee that they're going to lose an election, that they will allow themselves to be befuddled by something so workaday as an election in five years time and you might not just get a socialist dictatorship. But I found it interesting in that you can read any number of introductions that my edition of 1984 has no less than two biographies of Orwell at the start and neither of them mention his work uh, producing propaganda during World War II. Or the fact that he made a list of uh, potential enemies within socialism mm-hmm. for the government to have. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he, he was not the idealistic hero, and, and both biographies managed to miss
3: that out about him, strangely. It's because I think what he was more than anything, he was just, just quintessentially English. And I think that's how he always found it difficult to square his Englishness, particularly from a, a more middle class or upper middle class background. With socialism, so in the in the line in the unicorn, he talks about this wonderful vision of you know there will be revolutionary militias billeted in the Ritz, but we'll still keep the royal family and etc. etc. He, he wants
1: he wants to keep that kind of humanist tint to it, right? When you when, you know when you're talking about people like Hardy and, and and everything else, you know you have this kind of pre-Marxist, like Christian-derived socialist kind of idea um And it's it's kind of weird. I mean, because it does come up repeatedly in the book, right? You know, this kind of slightly redemptive, well, very redemptive kind of idea. Hope lies in the proles. You know, all that kind of stuff. Right, recovering history in a way that is is there in is there in Marxism?
2: Shooting an elephant this morning, where it re- I remembered, you know, reading. Obviously, it it's just in there. How how conflicted he probably would have been and i think the englishness thing gets gets to that a bit because it's sort of he dislikes in shooting an elephant imperialism in the abstract he's not happy with being a part of it and that sort of thing but he also really really doesn't like the people that the imperials are are kind of uh ruling over and he's very and he's very torn about that you get that internal thing where he's like they should know that I'm, you know, I'm opposed to their oppression, but also they're just, you know, they're they're just un- it's, civilized. It's
0: the uh, parallels between the civilizing mission idea, but also the whole, and this happens even in modern socialism, the idea that the proles might not know what's good for them.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And, that's and this is the what idea Winston false this, consciousness. Yeah. yeah,
0: and this is what Winston levels at the dictator towards the end is that well, clearly you do this because you think that this is genuinely good for society but people don't realise that, so you must force them to do it. And O'Brien uh, is like, no, we do it because we want to have
3: power. And, and another ambiguous aspect of Orwell's writing and thinking is, like you say, his his attitude to the, the people who he's taken up their cause. But if if you read The Road to Wigan Pier, down now in Paris and London, although he, he clearly invests so much of his, his energy in the idea of, of the proletarian revolution, he's quite disgusted by working class people. He says that they smell, they're dirty, they drink Um, terrible beer, absolutely and and so it it is another contradiction And, and, and the book is about contradictions. In many ways.
0: But there's like that's deeply contradictory, but to be honest, we're very familiar with that attitude towards the working class within, the, say, Br- modern British Absolutely. socialism. That's
2: the thing, I think that is a very British thing. It reminds me of, I mean, I was telling you guys about the children's book, but it talks a lot about the Fabians, and there is this sort of, we're trying to help these people and do what's good for them. We don't actually want to be around them, because they're not quite as human as we yeah. are, or, you know, that might be too harsh, but it's sort of a a beneficent, sort of polite, civilising sort of thing that does seem very English, is, and I think, but then, you know, so it's kind of, there are good impulses there, but there's still very much a kind of hierarchical but class.
3: At least the impulse was there. I would argue that in a lot of modern left-wing thought, essentially class, or uh, as, a, as, a, as an important central political concept, or the working class themselves have been, have been abandoned. Is that because our traditional barrier
0: of what makes you middle class, the attainment of a university degree, was essentially abolished by new labour? Perhaps. Um, one thing that I noted rereading the book is they talk about that section of the world which is overall neutral, and it's generally the third world and a lot of the colonised places. And the idea is that we're fighting over there not for strategic positions or sea lanes, but for their cheap labour. And this is something that I think it was all well talked about about World War II, is that no matter what Hitler does, Hitler can't affect the price we pay a worker in India. Um, and that is Britain's
3: great economic strength. He, he had a... It was in an, art, an article called, and I, I apologise for the, the language because this is the title that it was, it was called Not Counting Niggers. And his argument was basically that, you know, the, the, the working class in Britain essentially people in Southeast Asia, people in India. Um, and in, in, in fairness to Orwell, he seems to have been ahead of his peers on a lot of the big issues of the 20th century. So in Burmese days, despite being a, 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 police, a policeman in the, the, the Indian imperial police, he calls out the evils of imperialism in Wigan Pier, down now in Paris and London, A Clergyman's Daughter, calls out the evils of capitalism. In homage to Catalonia he, and coming up for air, he calls out the evils of fascism and nationalism. And in Animal Farm and 1984, he calls out the evils of communism or Stalinism or totalitarianism. Um, so I think he's, he's, he was quite a, a, a pro- profoundly original thinker in many ways. That, perhaps, again, that was his Englishness that he was so contrarian.
0: It's certainly true that 1984 specifically is about England. So he has this global world worked out where okay, we have these floating fortresses and we know what the battle lines are and who the strategists are, but we're not actually concerned with any of that beyond what's happening in English tower blocks and English pubs. And I think that's your point, that it's fundamentally about English socialism rather than any other idea. Yeah,
3: absolutely.
0: It's also about history which was a thing we mentioned before we turned on the mic is that um there's a lot of theory of history going on here
2: i was laughing earlier when we just started and you said you know we we've lost the references to his theory of history in pop culture and i'm like well i'm not sure that there are many pop culture references to anyone's theory of history um, at least not explicitly well,
0: i think more that so we, we use like big brother or people use yeah. uh, double speak which is of course actually a weird thing that they've evolved from the book because there's there's double think and there's Newspeak, yeah. but um we were saying that aside from maybe the use of the word kryptonite big brother is one of the few pieces of science fiction to just transcend its own work and become part of our everyday lexicon mm-hmm. but this book is fundamentally
3: about not just the nature of objective reality but the idea of past and present it is so it's historically rude, because I was thinking another thing that, we you know, two plus two equals five. Yeah. But that was actually a, a Soviet slogan in the five-year plan. It was like, let's get it done in four years, yeah. basically. Um, But Danielle, something you've talked about with your research, your thesis, is the
0: idea that the perception that we are part of this progressing thing called history and that there's a past and a future is remarkably new and is not universally held at all.
2: Yeah. And it's quite... Um... I was just giving a lecture on this to undergrads, and it's very, you have to use examples to make people understand that history is a form of technology that's relatively recent in its invention. It's not just a recounting of what happened in the past, because, and this is something I have difficulty wrapping my mind around because I'm a modern historical being, but people, even within... The European context, a few centuries ago, didn't have an understanding of past, present, and future, really. The past, in particular, is pretty much a modern invention. It's sort of, people understood there was a difference between them and distance, like time, and that sort of thing, but it wasn't that same sort of the past is a dead and gone thing that we can analyze to tell us about ourselves in the present and the future. And what it really more is the invention of the present, like where where is now? Um, and what does it mean to exist in the present that differentiates you from the past, that kind of thing. But in terms of it being a technology, um, the examples that I use are things like, you know, if you call somebody medieval or feudal or backwards, it's not a compliment, but you're also trying to sort of write them out of the present and say they don't count in the same way, they're sort of backwards in time, and it has political consequences. I mean, we talk about slavery as though... It's something that happened in the past. And There's more
0: slaves now the than the other The Global Slavery side of human Index
2: has upped the estimate to 46 million people living in slavery. And, but if you talk about it like, you know, slavery is something that's backwards and barbaric that we used to do a couple hundred years ago, then you forget that it's something that happens now that we all benefit from. I mean, if you have a smartphone, I think what's better is if you have granite countertops or you know somebody with a granite tombstone. That was most likely provided by slave labor, because granite is like the number one kind of problem and stuff. But it's getting people to realize that the past and history are not commensurate things. Um, And it doesn't mean that history can't be quite emancipating, like understanding something as historical can help you contextualize that sort of thing. But also it can be used against people. The one thing I think always gets them is, like, the World Cup in Brazil. I mean, they were trying to remove indigenous people off of their lands. And so they were saying they weren't indigenous enough. They were actually just slum dwellers, um, and part of their justification for that was they used social media. They're on Facebook, so they can't really claim to be authentically indigenous. So you're sort of using history as a weapon in that sense to be like, well, this isn't actually... you can't claim that identity. You don't get to participate in the way that you want, you know, so
0: you're stuck. Um. I think the telling thing in 1984 is not the the control of history, but the abolition of history. Mm. Um, you, you ask what is now. Well, in 1984, it is always now. They don't even know what the date is. Um, whatever is happening now is the way it has always been. The war is always just becoming within a measurable... I love that line. Uh, approaching a measurable distance towards its end. Yeah which seems to be like the, the the immediate gutting of the Churchill quote, the end of the beginning. Um, there's no past, there's, there's not just no history in *1984*. there's no passage of time. It is always the present. Yeah.
3: Winston himself is unsure of when he was born.
0: Yes, uh, although Thomas pinchin has pointed out that Winston's birth date is almost certainly located to Orwell's son. Um,
1: I think the funny thing is, about the history thing, I mean, that, that that's also part of the process of atomization, right? So, I mean, you know, it's not just the getting rid of the past and it's always now. I mean, what that does, at least in kind of, I guess the Marxist argument, would be that, I mean, that's pre- precisely what it does, is it isolates you from your connection with other people, hmm. right? Which is what the kind of slightly more Christian-inflected Christian, infle- Mar- Christian inflected Marxism was always about, is recovering that, that's
2: interesting. recovering that,
1: those links to other people.
2: Because this is, I mean, one of the, Historians I use most in my work talks about this Constantin Fassel, where he says, you know the the I, understanding we have of freedom and individuals and individuality that's associated with sort of what led to our modern conceptions of history is a very oppressive form of freedom that atomizes people and that kind of thing. But the quote I wanted to read from the book because um, you're right, it, it very much is about history, which I think you can forget, but one of the slogans of the party is, who controls the past, uh, ran the party fluid, controls the future. Who controls the present, controls the past. And it um, I mean, you see this all the time with um, Like people who come from conflict zones and stuff. I remember talking to, I had a bunch of roommates who were from Thailand, and I've also known people from China and stuff. And the things that they're taught in school about... China or Thailand vice versa, you know, depending on which place, is you you kind of sit there if you're not involved in that conflict going, that's a very strange interpretation or usage of history and that kind of... You're getting it right now in the U.S. where people keep referring to slaves that were brought over as immigrants. Immigrants. And you're a bit like, well, you know... Or David Cameron was doing it, you know, talking about the refugees, saying he refused to call them anything but economic migrants because... You, you have to treat those things very differently. Um, and that, I think, is very much about who's controlling language, but also who's controlling our sense of history and you know, what is important significant. and
3: significant. It is a historical novel, but I think maybe we, we... Because we read it from the present day, we can also overestimate the fact it very much is a novel based in the, the, the present of the time mm-hmm. that he was writing. Well, it's called 1984 because he voted in 1948. Exactly, yeah. And, and so it's obvious that he's primarily concerned with the Soviet Union, the experience of the Russian Revolution, the 20s and the 30s and the 40s. And so mid-sentence where the announcer changes... I can't remember the exact permutation. He's but at war with who? East Asia yeah. to Eurasia. And he's in the middle of a
0: speech and someone has a note,
3: And that is a clearly a reference to the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact you know, and yeah. it's this dissolution... Um, is it Emmanuel uh, Goldstein? Goldstein is clearly Trotsky and big brother is clearly Stalin. He's got a big moustache um, and so an interesting thing I read, I remember reading a very long time ago was The Captive Mind and I, I apologise for, for butchering the pronunciation of the author's name, I think it was Sesla Mishlos, or Mil- Milos, sorry. Um, we will tweet the correct spelling. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. I apologize. Um and he said that 1984 was was being passed around basically the inner party in I think it was Czechoslovakia at the time, and people could not believe that George Orwell was English. He said it has to be somebody who's lived in the Soviet Union or the or the Eastern the Eastern bloc. Um because nobody could be this Incisive. That's almost a cliché of great
0: literature though, isn't Absolutely, it? Absolutely,
3: right? yeah. But another thing I want to mention is, as well as it being concerned with the Soviet experience, is that, I mean, Christopher Hitchens makes this point, that it's also very clearly an, an analogy for the, the English Reformation. So there's the, there's the inner party that has this sacred book who only certain people can, can gaze upon. Um, there is the, you know, the big brother who's the eternal father... Um, and, and, and reading it, but not understanding the book. Precisely, <laughs> and so Winston is essentially his struggle is the struggle that is contained in the the kind of thirty nine articles of the Church of England. You know, he wants that he wants a language that people can understand, that, that people can relate to, and, and give meaning to. And the book is revealing an inner truth. Absolutely, he's not learning things. He's immediately yeah. so. In that sense, it is a very English book. You get yeah. that
2: kind of. I mean, that that sounds like a lot of heretical sects or different religious sects throughout history, because I used to study medieval religious history where, like, the Cathars have that, where it's sort of like there's an inner circle which has special knowledge and everybody else, you know, you might get it through the laying upon of hands or something, but you can't quite understand it, and there's different levels of rules and understanding and quite... Because um, it, it's a good way to control people, you know. You mystify things and you...
3: Orwell repeatedly makes a link between Catholicism and communism in his writing. And
2: mm-hmm. uh, this
0: has certainly been deeply ingrained in how socialism grew up in places like South America, yeah. where it was deeply tied to Catholic ideas of charity.
3: I mean, or- Orwell, I think it's in, it might be um, why I write on, on notes on nationalism, where he says that the, the communists of today, you know, 40, 50 years ago, they would have been the kind of Chesterton Catholic. And he says, um, one of his famous quotes, which is um, that the Catholic and the Communist are alike in, in the sense that they both find it hard to believe that an opponent can be both um, honest and, and intelligent. And so he he constantly makes this link between Catholicism and communism. Which is a problem that, again, the British left
0: seems to have. Which is incredibly English, yeah. again. <laughs> <laughs> How can somebody disagree with you, but both honest and intelligent? They must be doing one of those things wrong. <laughs> Um, something we would we tell we want to talk about was Alex, you had thoughts about the structure of the novel and how it. I did.
2: Somebody <laughs> you did. You
0: do now. <laughs> <laughs> how it's almost not structured as a story, but is is way for Orwell to put across his points.
2: Oh, I think I was saying that it's not so much the structure of the novel, but just that talking about how much it is a novel. Because before we started recording, we were talking about Ayn Rand and how. She wrote novels, um, in quotes. You know, Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged are the most well-known, but there were others. She wrote
0: in, in and... quotes.
2: Well, but... but <laughs> no, I novel, mean, like, novels in like Novels quotes. in quotes. It in was, quotes. was novels in <laughs> quotes. But the thing is is that they're really just vehicles for... Her philosophy, also in quotes, because, again, I'm not sure who would call it a philosophy, but it's... They're screeds attempting to sort of get a certain message out there. And 1984 is better than that. It's certainly more nuanced, but it's also... Um, like you were saying, Alex, that it was so unrelentingly grim and that kind of... Or no, you were saying that, Jim, but like, you know, or you were saying how frightening it is, but it's very sort of up front and in your face about the message that it's trying to bring across, and I... Part of the reason I'm doing the recording is I read an article reason, recently I told Matthew about, um, by Adam Gopnik, who's a writer for The New Yorker, and he, um... He starts off kind of saying he has a confession to make. He never really liked nineteen eighty four that much because he thought it was too um sort of in your face and simplistic and that authoritarianism wouldn't happen that way. And that he always preferred a brave new world, and Aldous Huxley, and he kind of says, turns out that's exactly how it'll happen. It won't it will be very blunt, it won't be subtle, it won't be insidious, it will just be There is, there are alternative facts, and it was the biggest inauguration crowd in history, that kind of thing, period.
0: (laughs) Well, there is that, there's a celebrated letter between Huxley and Orwell, where Huxley says, 1984 is a very good book, but you were wrong and I am right, Uh, in that (laughs) when, when we come to be oppressed, it will not be because people have been deleting our sources or been deleting words from our vocabulary. Because there will be far too many sources for us to keep track of. And and this certainly appears to be true. The internet is this overload of information. And some dictatorships, certainly like Vladimir Putin, um, will attempt to just put out so much information. It's called called the fire hose. You just put out so much, both half-truths and lies and truths, that nobody can tell what's going on. And yeah, for the longest time, it looked like Huxley was right and Orwell was wrong. And then, maybe not, it turns out. I think it's
2: more... They're probably both right. I mean, there's probably a pendulum that happens here where you sort of... You can go too far in either direction, and perhaps also they meet at a certain point, because one thing the Trump administration is doing is... I mean, they're doing so many things. They're saying so many things where you're like, your head spins kind of trying to keep track of all of the misinformation and stuff. So they are hitting you with all this information, but it's also obviously incorrect a lot of times. But I think... Um, you know, I don't think people studying governmentality now are wrong or that they're on the wrong track. It's just that there's more than one way that this could all go south, sort of thing. Um, but I do think that Huxley seems more uh, believable because it's a bit more um, I, we were saying this before it started where I was like, I think people read 1984 and think we're better than that. We wouldn't let this happen to ourselves. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's why it's so popular. I was kind of like, oh, maybe we will let this happen to ourselves. Um, because oppression does sort of require the consent of the audience being oppressed to a certain extent, you know, in terms of colonial powers and that kind of thing. Um, people, it's not, it's not necessarily conscious consent, like, yes, I would like to be oppressed, but it's this sort of, oh, I'm not going to fight back on this because it's I might be hurt, that kind
1: I think I think the one thing I mean I, I agree with you in the sense that quite a lot of this novel novels obviously just a vehicle for his ideas, mm-hmm. but there's a, a a far greater psychological depth to it oh, yeah. than anyone like Ayn Rand ever managed, Definitely. and and but yeah. I mean there's a there's a deeper point to that right in the sense that it's a, it's a psychologically compelling story, mm-hmm. in in the sense that you can. One of the things I, I, I genuinely forgot about this, and it's been probably the best part of 15 years since I've read it, um, is, is that it's written in Winston's voice, mm-hmm. right, that it's written from his point of view. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that we forget when we're kind of throwing out 1984 as a, as a trope mm-hmm. is that we say, oh, it's like newspeak, as if newspeak was a thing, right? I mean, we don't get that, apart from in the appendix, right? The, you know, all, everything we know about newspeak, we, we know... Be- because of what Winston thinks about. Uh, and must it's be. basically impossible
0: for us to construct
1: a sentence in it. Right. Yeah. And uh, but just the sheer paranoia of the novel. Mm.
2: Well, and that's the other thing. I mean Orwell obviously is a lot better than somebody like Rand. And I think you get that in terms of also what happens to Winston because until you get to the end you kind of you think that there is more hope than there ends up being and that you wouldn't you know, obviously these two find each other and they fall in love and we have this sort of idea of love conquers all and we'll be able to overcome this oppression or we've we've gotten around the system or people will free themselves. And it's sort of like, no, you'd probably break if somebody tried to break you. Um, which I think is, that's a very important point because um, you had that with things like Nazis and the Holocaust and that sort of thing. It's like a lot of it required people to... Not do what they would do at their very best kind of thing, and um, the Milgram experiments are things that show that where it 's like most people actually are not you know they'll, they listen to authority, um, they don't walk out and they don't refuse they're not the heroes that they might think of themselves as being, um, so I think it's a good message in that way to kind of check yourself because we all do that I think we're sort of. Like, I wouldn't have done what that person did and it's like you might have.
0: Oof. Even Winston sort of absolved from this because the message, if there's any hope, it lies in the proles. Mm-hmm. Well, is this the novel's way of going, well, look, Winston can't change the world? Uh, there is nothing he can do. And so, actually, overthrowing Big Brother should be the, the working classes, that's their
3: job, and that he shouldn't feel bad for not doing it. In many ways, I think Orwell is his, wor- his own worst enemy in terms of, is this a political essay with bells and whistles on? Because after the Spanish Civil War, he he explicitly states, you know, from now on, everything I write is against totalitarianism and for democratic socialism. And it's easy to forget nowadays that a lot of intellectuals, or whatever you like to call them, the period, were, whatever you want to call it, people of action as well. So George Orwell goes to the Spanish Civil War, he gets shot in the neck, he slums it in London and Paris and Wigan. Um, <laughs> he <laughs> slums it in Wigan. The, there's, there's, no, yeah, there's, there's no other way to exist in Wigan. But Thomas Pynchon, um, in the, the introduction to the, the Penguin Classic version, he, he kind of takes the opposite um, idea and he says, if this were really only a political essay disguised as a novel... Julia would most likely have been obliged to symbolise something, the pleasure principle or middle class common sense or something, but because this is a novel first of all, her character is not necessarily under Orwell's firm control. Novelists may wish to indulge the worst kinds of totalitarian whims directed against the freedom of their characters, but often as not they scheme in vain, for characters always manage to evade one's all-seeing eye long enough to think thoughts and utter dialogue one could never have come up with if plot. Were all they
0: were. I, I think if the question is what does Julia represent, it's worth pointing out that Winston's about as old as Orwell was when he wrote it. And Winston looks not unlike Orwell looked. And Julia is a is a hot young babe for him to have sex with, so uh, it, yeah. I I wonder how much Julia is actually just author fantasy here. Well
2: she's his second wife, isn't she? Yeah. 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 I mean but also, but that also means she's a person. I mean yeah. she she represents a person. And that is different from just like an yeah. idea like you're saying I mean, I do think it very much is a novel. It's not just a political essay, but it, it kind of it walks that line at points because it does beat you over the head with certain themes that it's trying to get across. Um, it doesn't... The, the story doesn't serve itself at every point. It also serves getting the points that he wants across. It.
1: Yeah, I think, I think there's this kind of slightly weird... I don't know. I mean, because the, towards the end, when he's being tortured and everything else, the most important thing that comes out of that is that he betrays he betrays Julia that for you know and it repeats this over and over again it really does hit you over the head with it for that moment or whatever he meant it right yeah yeah and that's a ridiculously soppy and abstract thing to be getting your pants in a twist over mm-hmm. I mean it it, it it seems to be like this kind of really humanist core to the book that I think at that point he could have gone elsewhere. I don't, I don't know. I...
0: See, I think that's where the book's fundamentally grounded in the Christian no, backing actually, to. Yeah, because there's no, that absolutely. whole denying the Holy Spirit is the one thing you can never come back from. And I've had this discussion with Christians who, and we've talked about... Um, the nature of oppression, and and martyrs who died for their cause. And I've always held that, well, look, if someone's torturing you, you can go, oh, yeah, no, I don't actually believe in Jesus. And and they can't make you not believe it. So I thought that was a perfectly valid way to go, is that that's actually mm. the victory the party needs.
1: Yeah, I, 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 I just thought it was a slightly... In, in some ways, I think, up until, up until that point, the book is still a bit about the regime, right? It's still yeah. a bit about so mm-hmm. and all that kind of thing. Whereas... And and actually maybe it's it's structurally intentional because it is a reduction of the person just to the person and none of their connections. Because at that point the book becomes just about Winston.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I know it's right at the end of the book. And I know I have a thing about the endings of novels. But... Well, <laughs> well, so
0: you famously don't like heroes and you don't like happy endings. So what do you think of the ending?
1: Um... I... I don't know i i I think i'm I think I'm a bit with Jim on this in the sense that I'm going to cop out and say I'm not sure what context to read it in right in in the sense that there is part of me which aesthetically finds it a little bit soppy um just in the sense of but there again I mean I'm not sure because one of the things I couldn't remember about the book was whether Julia was a thought uh, an agent of the thought please. Um, and then she turns out not to be. Um, I, I, don't know. I
2: I think it had to. I mean, I think it all had to come down to being about Winston because one of the main points he makes. I'm trying to find the quote, but he says the only thing that you own. Yeah,
1: yeah is be.
2: your mind. Yeah, and I, so they have to break your. I mean, they have to own your mind for this to actually work. And that's, well, I
1: think I think that's at the core of the kind of. This is kind of highfalutin phrase, but the kind of idea of humanity that he's defending, then, mm. right? and I, I'm, I think that's an idea that's a little bit outdated now.
2: Yeah, but yeah, but I think, well, it's, I mean, it might be outdated kind of in academic terms and stuff, but I don't know that it's that. I mean, I remember the first time I read 1984 in school when I was a teenager, that I kind of my resistance to it was sort of like, yeah, but people can't get in your mind, you could still, like, dream yeah, up a no, whole another world mm, yeah, to yeah. live a kind of thing, like, that's your resistance. Um, so I think we still do have that kind of, that's our understanding no, I don't. in some ways. Yeah, right. I, I think
1: we do, and I, I think the problem I have when I read a lot of this stuff, and when I read Orwell in general, actually, and I get, I get, is I'm stuck between a kind of more academic understanding of Marxism and all that kind of stuff, hmm. and then a kind of, slightly romantic kind of christian derived socialism by virtue of where i'm from where i was brought up so i mean i you know it's a real tension i'm not undermining the novel on that basis but i I think it was something that really stuck out to me is kind of
3: what do people think about the postscript?
0: see i'm one of those people who stopped and read it before reading the book because that changes the, how the ending. The thing thing. On Newspeak. Yeah. yeah. Because it speaks entirely of Newspeak in, the, in past. the past tense, which gives you a happy ending. This is much like *Handmaid's Tale*; is it gives you a happy ending because you realise that the world the character suffered through did not
3: endure. And is that some? Is that something you felt? Because those are the two twists. I, I think there. Are, when he's speaking of the hope lies in the pros, he's looking out over London and all the stars, and I'm, I'm immediately after that that's when they're, they're busted. Yeah, you know? yeah. uh, and, that's the, and I feel as if the postscript is kind of the, the, op- the opposite twist in a way, that um, he felt as if he had to put that ending on. And I've, I've seen people suggest that it's because Winston would be this, the same age as his son, that he felt as if he had to give his son or that generation some way out of it. Mm. Um, as if it would be... Because it is an unrelentingly grim book. And I, I, I feel it would be better if he would have just stuck with that unrelenting grimness.
2: Yeah, committed to it. I
1: think, I mean, this is a different point, I think, as an account of a, an imaginary language, I think it's really cool.
3: Yeah,
1: definitely. Um, I think it's brilliant in, and probably quite ahead of its time linguistically speaking, um, although some of this stuff has actually been foreshadowed by the Soviet Soviet scientists at this point, but I mean, I I don't know, I I didn't I didn't realize that was what it was there for.
2: Well, I'm not sure. Just historically speaking, do you really like I I always think of the French Revolution where it's like yes, it did take the the proletariat to keep. The engine of the revolution going, but the revolution was not a revolution of the proletariat. In that, I mean, you 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 usually have to have sort of middle class architects or people who are better off, but they're still for whatever reason being excluded from the top tiers to sort of orchestrate that happening. And I don't. I always sort of wondered what if he might. Sort of subtly be talking about that. Like, is it, I could think, the proles really do it?
3: I think he makes that point because the, the, the case system that there is is the inner party, the outer party, and the, pro- the proletariat. The top, the middle, and the bottom. And exactly, and I, and I think the point he kind of is making with, with the outer party, how, you know, the ambition is to get into the outer party, um, have a slightly higher living standard, access to different things. I think he's making the point there that, that, that middle classes, the bourgeoisie, whatever, are, are the most problematic, yeah. revolutionary um, group within a society, and that's why the outer party exists to, in some way, buy them off and give them the opportunity to one day become a member of the inner party. Yeah. And so, Winston, who is a member of, of the outer party, yeah. you know, has rejected this. Him investing in the proles, in many ways, him rejecting you know, that process. Well, there's the...
0: There's the observation that revolutions are when the middle enlists the bottom to overthrow the top, but all that ever happens is the middle install themselves as the new top.
2: That was one of the things I was saying before we started recording, too, is that I think one of the things I always had an issue with in 1984 is that, to me, it was clear they didn't do enough to buy people off in order to maintain this system. Like, it, it, couldn't, it couldn't persist because it was too grim were too many people within it. You know, but I, think I think it's, it's parallel
3: to World War Two. Britain suggests yeah. that... That's the distinction between between Brave New World and um, 1984, is that 1984 was written after the war yeah. and Brave New World was written before the war. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously not the, the only distinction, but I think it it's, gives it the key context. So when Orwell's writing, you, you've had you know, privation of, of, of the worst kind on the continent in Britain for Six years, you know, the Defence of the Realm Act, which was accepted by pretty much every side of the, the political spectrum. And almost no
0: yeah. newspaper barked about um F notices?
3: Yeah, precisely. Yeah. You, ha- you have rationing still, which will will continue. And so I think post war England was a pretty grim place, and I, th- I think that feeds into the. Yeah. And obviously, that the Blitz had left so much of the cities.
0: And the. Um... In 1984, people aren't spirited by bombings. They, they ignore them and they don't pay attention to bombs that hit the next street yeah. over, which is, of course, a real truth of the Blitz, which our pop culture has decided that we, we, we don't want to talk about. We'd rather pretend there was a Blitz spirit and people didn't raid each other's houses.
1: I think, I think the Proles thing is also about, about history, though, right? I mean, because the Proles, the Proletariat, have always been the carrier of history, right? So the carrier of cultural memory that capitalism can't deal with. Can't come I can't sustain. Um, so I think, in that sense, and when you, you read books about it, 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 I don't know what the category is, like industrial novels, right? Mm-hmm. You, you've you got this kind of romanticization of, of the working class precisely on that basis, in a way that I'm not sure applies to the French Revolution yeah. in the same way, because it's not a. Yeah, I. I th- I mean, in in, in in books like, there's a book by Robert Tressell called The Ragged Trestle Philanthropist, which does exactly this kind of, which does this conflict really well, actually, because you have all these Marxists rocking up at union meetings, trying to teach them about theories of surplus value, right? Through a loaf of bread. Through a loaf yeah. of bread, and And, and that's just an, a kind of abstract principle that's so alien to their actual life, right? And so the... In some ways, the only thing that gets them going is that kind of slightly more Christian.
0: How do we square this with the idea that our modern dictatorship has ostensibly been propelled into power by the working classes?
2: But it hasn't. Right, I that's mean, the, this thing. Is the thing. It's, I mean, if you look at the breakdown, if, I think you're talking about Trump in this instance, and if you're looking at the breakdown of Trump voters, they are economically better off, they tend not to live in areas where they've lost their jobs to globalization, immigrants, and that kind of thing. It's a perception. I mean, that's the thing. Trump supporters are racist. You know, that yeah, quite, is one of the big the... key things. And it's even if it's not the kind of they're not all KKK supporters, but it is this sort of sense where it's like, well, if, I mean, if I feel like I'm doing as bad as these other people, that I should, by virtue of being me, be doing better than, then we really have a big problem. It's kind of a... um, So that, I mean, I think that's important in terms of not going down the newspeak road, is that Trump supporters, by and large, are not worse off.
3: And that's where the parallel with Brexit is. I mean, the story we've been fed about Brexit is it's these smelly working class people in Northern England, in South Wales, who are a bit stupid because they don't have a degree, and they don't know what's good for them, right? They're suffering from a case of false consciousness. Um, But we don't talk about the the vast swathes of South East England, of South West England, um, of, of, of well-off people in the shires that, that voted for Brexit the, the, and the poster boys the almost 40%
0: were. of Scotland which did which yeah, still adds precisely. up to the total but um, is apparently forgotten in the because I, it's an easy it,
1: narrative yeah I think the other thing is we we roll out class as a kind of single variable right I mean you know, if I'm <laughs> a bit social scientist about this mm-hmm. um, we use it in the title but um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know I I, I think the when when you're in a situation where, I mean, that kind of worked when the economic status of someone was going to be the same as their parents, right? Mm-hmm. And now that's not the case. It can't stand on its own as a, as a way of explaining things, right? I mean, because you end up with this problem that well, actually, age, which is is is, is a determining factor, yeah, right? So yeah. I, I mean. It's a... I, I don't know the age breakdown for Trump voters, actually. I mean, case, I know... I know well, that I know. to be older. And you know. that was true with Brexit as well. Well, yeah, it was,
2: yeah. But one of the interesting flips from what you said is that in the US, it's almost the opposite thing in terms of talking about class. I mean, Britain has a very different understanding of class, but also the US has always had this myth of the American dream and pull yourself up by the bootstraps thing, and that you can, based off of your own power, have social mobility. So mm. your the lives of your parents doesn't dictate the life that you will have, but that's, if it was ever true, it's certainly not true now in the way that it might used to have been, and that's one of the things about Trump, is that you have all these white people who expected to be better and better and better than the generations that came before them, and, you know, perhaps the U.S. economy has gotten close enough to its capacity that that just can't be the case any longer, that there are certain class barriers that have come down that are more sort of almost like what it, was, what it would have been like in Britain than it used to be. Um, I think you have slightly more social mobility here because more people are going to university and that kind of thing, although maybe the Tories will try to stop that. Whereas in the U.S. it's kind of become, you are likely to lead a life that's the same or worse than your parents now in a way that's bothering people.
0: I think a telling thing about the novel is it's they to talk about class in this way and almost never mention race.
3: Uh, it's very, and that's a very, very British
0: thing. British. You couldn't do that in an American novel.
3: But he also he mentions that um, he's talking about outer party members and inner party members, and, and, and you will say that there will be um, uh, black people or Asian people, and it, it's, it's quite quite curious actually for for its time mm-hmm. um, as, a, as a vision of the future. Um, but he was he occasionally did have like blind spots on race. Um, particularly anti-semitism, something you often just ignored, and, and and the Holocaust, it's particularly Jewish dimensions. So, again, again a complicated approach to a that big That sounds issue.
2: like Trump as well, Where we're on, you know, national remembrance well, <laughs> Holocaust no, Memorial whole, Day. Holocaust Memorial Day, they released a statement that didn't mention Jews at all. Like, and did, they, did, did they just like, all
0: lives matter the Holocaust?
2: Yes, yeah, did. Yeah, yeah, know, yeah. It kind did. Of it is interesting, like, we call those blind spots, but you wonder, at least in the case of the Trump, that's not a blind spot. That's, that's very, a crafted... kind of like, um, and you know, it's that whole not really talking about what you're talking about, which you do with racist dog whistles, where you don't say that it's because they're black, you say it's because it's people in the inner cities, which is a code word for black people, um, that Trump uses all the time. Um, yeah.
0: Redefining language, mm. sort
2: of. Well I was gonna say this about the just because I'm the Wittgenstein girl in the room, but I, I think it's interesting because the book is about history, it's also about language. And the whole the coda at the end where it's becomes optimistic because newspeak is something in the past and it's like, well yeah, because history is about control. It's p you're trying to impose an understanding of reality. And you're trying to you're trying to make something dead and analyzable. Language is a living thing. Something like Newspeak would be almost impossible. I Actually, I think it probably would be impossible because language is something that happens between people. So you can't, you can come up with as many rules as you want, but that isn't how it works as a thing.
0: Or is it? Because we were talking about how Russian has, there's difficulty in existential literature in Russia because of, the idea of being isn't necessarily present in the language.
2: Well, I think, I mean, I think you could have certain things that influence it, but ultimately, language changes as a result of people speaking it to each other, regardless of the language. Um, and, you know, they die and shift, and I mean, that's...
0: It's very Hegelian.
2: Well, yeah, <laughs> but I think it's more Wittgenstein, just sort of saying, you can't... Uh, this is why you can't have a private language, so you also can't really have a, f- a formula for language that says this is what language is and anything outside of it isn't.
1: I think I think in some ways precisely what the novel's breaking down, though, is that idea of private language, right? I mean, if you want to talk about it in those terms, right, you know, Winston's there saying, well, you know, you can't beat me because I have a private language, mm-hmm. right? And the party's going, <laughs> we can. Right. Yeah, we can. Right. And, and, and there um, are
0: active attempts at, so Esperanto is the famous European yeah. attempt at, let's build a language that is perfect, and of course it,
3: it, it can't be. William Shatner in the only Esperanto language film ever. I just thought <laughs> the, the listeners needed yeah. to know that. They <laughs> do,
2: we like our fun facts.
3: <laughs> but I mean, how, how you know, is there all, are there also societies in the world today where 1984 is, is, is very much more obviously relevant, so so I, North Korea would be the I, I read yeah, I, I where read they also, have radios you can't turn off yeah. i read, I read also that there's a saying in Burma which is George Orwell wrote three books about Burma, Burmese days, animal farmer, and nineteen eighty four and it'd be interesting to see what influenced the book uh, a novelty the book still has it in those authoritarian societies,
0: I think possibly an interesting thing to end on is the fact that. The book has once again become itself, because you talked about bootleg copies in Czechoslovakia. And of course, within 1984, there's a book within a book that all the rebels are passing around to try and yeah. free themselves by learning. And of course, a bookshop in California is giving out copies of 1984 for free in an attempt to pass around a book which will free people from the oppression of their government. So
2: It is interesting how books are read in different places. And that, I mean... Where you read it as, you might read it as an allegory or political essay and other people read it as reality. And I mean, my favorite example of that is always um, the Satanic Verses by, not Satanic Verses, Midnight's Children by Salman Rushdie, where it's won the Booker of Bookers twice and it's kind of considered to be the best Booker Prize winner. And you read it and we read the magical realism and it's quite bizarre, almost from a, Perspective, but one of the things in the interviews that you, if you talk to people in India, when they're like, well, they just wrote a history book of India. You're (laughs) like, you know, a history book where we have all these telepathic children that are connected by their hour of birth at the, you know, at India's emancipation from the, you know, and you're sort of like very different understandings of of what history is in that sense and sort of what reality is and that kind of thing.
0: Uh, I think that should do us for this one. Uh, thanks for tuning in hopefully you found it uh, double plus good
2: yeah.
0: uh, next month we're doing the idea is to do the Eisenhorn Trilogy by Dan Abnett so uh, thanks for listening
2: we should do my